Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I am Tracy V. Wilson. And today we are talking about an area of history that I super love. Yes. Which is any Chinese history. I really love it. It's such a, a rich, rich tapestry. It's been going on for so long and there have been so many interesting dynasties and cultural things that it's just, I love Chinese history. Yay. I love it. So today we're talking about um, Chinese Empress Dowager Tsiji, who has been characterized with a great deal of gossip and speculation. She's often described as pure evil, uh, and her story includes some sexual scandals, um, poisoning scandals, and without a doubt, she was exceptionally powerful, and she actually ruled the Qing dynasty for more than 45 years. Uh, but in all of these characterizations, they kind of come down to archetypes, and they're not really a full picture of a human being, which she was. Um, so I thought it would be interesting to examine a little bit her life and some of the uh, things that we do know, things that have been theorized, and probably the truth, which is somewhere in the middle. Right. Yeah. So she was uh, born on November 29th of 1835, and she was actually the daughter of a low-ranking military officer. She became a concubine for Emperor Xiaofeng's harem at the age of 16. And this was really a great honor. It might sound unpleasant to be sent off to to a harem when you're a teenage girl, but this was a swank appointment. Yeah, she was chosen because, you know, they thought she was beautiful and lovely and had many gifts. Right. Uh, Xiaofeng was pretty new to being emperor at that point. He had reigned for less than two years when this happened. And the story goes that her beautiful singing voice actually drew the emperor's attention, and she quickly became one of his favorites. Uh, and her popularity really paid off with the emperor, really paid off in a big way. She bore Xiaofeng, his only son, uh, Prince Zaitun, in 1856. And at this point, she was given the title of virtuous imperial concubine, which is like third in rank. So for anyone that doesn't uh, know about how that works in Chinese history, you there were many wives and they each had a ranking order. And she was getting promoted based on being a favorite and then bearing a son. And then the next year, she moved up to the second rank and was given the title Virtuous Honorable Concubine. And meanwhile, while her you know personal life and childbearing and relationship with the emperor was going on, the Second Opium War was also underway. And that could easily be its own podcast episode. It's very involved. But the Cliff Notes version is this. Um, Britain, France, Russia, and America were fighting for diplomatic embassies and access to Chinese ports and foreign travel rights in China so that foreigners could actually travel through the country. And they also wanted to legalize the opium trade. And there were other elements um, of their war that they wanted. That, that Those weren't the only things, but those were the big primary ones. And the war actually ended in 1860 with the ratification of the Treaty of Tianjin under the Convention of Peking. In 1861, Xiaofeng fell ill and died at the Imperial Summer Resort, where he had gone after fleeing Peking during the war. So when Xiaofeng uh, died, that left, of course, the emperor position open and... He had an heir. 
He did because uh, because Gigi of this relationship had, had borne him this son. And uh, that son was only five at the time, and he became Emperor Tongji, which made Shiji the honored mother Empress Dowager. But shortly before he had died, Xiaofeng had actually appointed eight ministers to assist the young emperor as a, as ruler, and those eight ministers were headed up by Sushun. Allegedly, Shiji had been handling some state affairs for Xiaofeng while he was sick. Uh, and was not really interested in handing over this power to anybody else. But this is not really well well substantiated. Right. I mean, we can't know what was really going on in her mind. We don't even know really how much she was or was not handling. It's all, this is one of those parts of it that's really kind of based on rumor and speculation of the people around her. Right. A lot of what was going on in, in the Forbidden City was just not transparent to anyone else. Right. Uh, and they were... You know, at the uh, the Imperial Summer Resort at this point, but yeah, their whole inner workings were very isolated, and they kind of projected outward what they wanted people to see. But the interior, we really don't know all that much about. Uh, but what we do know is that either through an agreement on their part or through an assignment, I have seen it uh, characterized both ways in historical texts. Shiji formed an alliance with the Empress Dowager Chan, who was the one wife that outranked her. Um, and this alliance together gave them more power than if either of them had tried to stand alone. Like they actually could make some decisions and hold some um, sway in court and in the political decisions with the two of them united. Uh, and she also allied with two of the imperial princes, Gong and Chun. So those were brothers of the deceased emperor. And... Uh, Shiji and the now young emperor, her son, preceded the funeral procession that went back to Beijing, Peking, uh, since it's changed names many times in the um, Western characterization of the city. And in the time before the ministers could arrive, since they had preceded the procession at that point, she colluded with those two princes to charge the regent ministers that Zhao Feng had appointed with incompetency in that second opium war that we talked about just a moment ago. Uh, Shiji and Prince Gong penned an accusatory document entitled Eight Guilts of the Regent Ministers. And basically, they just set up this thing that like they were poor advisors. They really allowed other countries to walk all over us. Um, you know, they weakened the emperor's position. And as a consequence of all of this intrigue, all of those regents were dismissed, all of the eight that Zhao Feng had appointed from his deathbed. Uh, but three of them were actually executed. And that's another area where things get a little um, gossipy in historical record and speculative. Some people think that Shiji wanted to make an example out of them. Others say that she wasn't really involved in that decision. But we do know that they were no longer in power and basically... Now, Shiji had all the power. Right. This put the duo of Empress Dowagers in power as regents. But Empress Dowager Chan didn't really have a lot of interest in political matters. So Shiji assumed the role of leader, and Prince Gong was appointed uh, in a position as the emperor's aide. And it's interesting that she became so powerful because women held a lower position both socially and politically than men at this point. So Shiji was basically running the country from behind a screen. Like literally when people would come to court and they would have discussions, she would be sitting behind a screen listening to everything, but she couldn't actually be seen by the people she was having a direct 
powerful impact on. She ruled as regent for 12 years until her son, Emperor Tongzi, turned 17 in 1873. Siji stepped down as regent to let her son rule on his own, but he died two years later at the age of 19. Officially, he had smallpox, but there are lots of rumors that he may have died of a sexually transmitted disease. Those, as with many of the things that are coming up in this episode, that's never been substantiated. Yeah, they're, they uh, issued their official proclamation from the palace, but we, we don't know. Uh, but what we do know is that when... Uh, Tongzi died, Shiji's nephew and the son of Prince Chun, so it's Shiji's nephew by marriage, um, Guangxu became the emperor. But he was only three years old at the time. And this, once again, uh, put Shiji in a position of power because she actually adopted Guangxu as her son as part of this whole like power restructuring for the new emperor. There's some controversy about how Guangxu became the emperor. When Tongzi died without an heir, one of his concubines was pregnant. The concubine died while the debate about who would be the next emperor was still going on. And so the possible heir was never born. So we don't really know if this would have been a boy or a girl. We don't really know uh, whether this child who wasn't born would have really been the next in line. Which means, of course, that there was suspicion that this was possibly murder. Yeah. And this feeds into some of the stories of Shiji being really, you know, an evil, evil woman. That she colluded with others to create this, um, to ensure that her power remained intact. And that she actually um, was involved in the murder of this woman. Uh, even though the death was announced publicly, again, the proclamation from the palace was that it was a suicide uh, Shiji remains a, a historical suspect, but so do the other princes that were involved. Um, Zhao Feng's brothers that had not come to power when he um, passed away. Shiji continued to rule from behind her screen. And even once the new emperor came of age, she still held the reins of power. Uh, and this is where things became a little contentious. She and, uh, and Guangxu diverged in their political views about what they wanted wanted to do. During the First Sino-Japanese War, uh, Guangxu wanted to engage the enemy, but Siji was, you know, she wanted to compromise, and she blocked his efforts. So after China was defeated, Guangxu started to recognize and think about the ways that he thought China needed to reform. Yeah, and he, uh, really realizing that the old ways were not going to carry the country forward... And so on June 11th of 1898, Guangxu started what is called the Hundred Days Reform. And that was a series of proclamations that he issued that were intended to modernize China and revitalize the dynasty. He uh, wanted to change and evolve the country's education, their industry, their foreign affairs. And all of his proclamations were in direct opposition to the conservative Manchu nobility and especially Xiji. Because Siji still held power over the loyal military, it was really easy for her to stage a coup. At this point, Siji reestablished her role as regent. She got assistance from other people who did not like the reform plans, and she sent the emperor to confinement in Yingtai Terrace for 10 years. The public announcement was that the emperor was sick to the point of being incapacitated, when in fact he had really just been shoved off his throne. Uh... And then, uh, so he basically stayed there the rest of his life 
which didn't uh, last a whole lot longer. Obviously, it was 10 years. And we'll talk about that a little bit in the moment. But as this point of the story and these reform- reformation efforts have happened, Shiji starts to make some missteps. Um, during the Boxer Rebellion of 1900, which was led by the Righteous Fists of Harmony, but they kind of get called the Boxers uh, in translation, Shiji sided with the insurgents, and she was against foreign diplomats and the Chinese Christians. She didn't really want change. She thought that they should protect their heritage and their history and their old ways of doing things. And some historians have theorized that this was actually just a play to minimize damage on the Qing dynasty, but and that she was trying to, you know, create as little damage as possible from the rebellion, but it really, really did nothing for her image on the global stage. She was basically saying, no, foreigners, we're not interested in you. Uh, and so when the coalition troops had stamped out the rebellion, Shiji was really left with a very ugly reputation as being, you know, unwelcoming and stubborn and close-minded. She really wanted to improve her image at this point. So she commissioned a photographer to create portraits of her in 1903. The portraits are staged similarly to ones of Queen Victoria, and they were intended to be given as gifts to visiting dignitaries. But before long, copies are being sold in the street as souvenirs. And as for helping her reputation, this was not exactly successful. She was still seen as a dangerous dragon lady by Westerners. And then uh, five years after that, uh, on November 14th of 1908, Emperor Guangxu died at the age of 37. Empress Dowager Shiji died the next day, just shy of the age of 74. And this became another part of the intrigue. At the time, there were suspicions that he had been murdered. Uh, but then a hundred years later, in 2008, a five-year research study actually concluded that had examined samples of the emperor's remains. I think seven of his bones were sampled, uh, both the interior and exterior of his tomb, garments that he had been wearing. And the analysis revealed that the emperor had actually been poisoned with arsenic more than triple the amount that would have been a fatal dose. And for a while, there was, uh, before this study was finalized, people had suspected that it was one of those things where people sometimes take poison as a medicine, mm-hmm. um, and that it was accumulative poisoning. But because of the way the um, the evidence played out, it was obviously like a one huge dose situation. It was an acute onset poisoning, not a cumulative one. Of course, Empress Dowager Siji is one of the people suspected in the poisoning because she might have known that she was dying and she didn't want Guanxu and his reforms to take over China. Yeah, so, and that rumor persists. I mean, there's um, there was actually a story that came out around the same time where some of the people that worked on this analysis are pretty confident she was the one who poisoned him. Right. Uh, well, and there is kind of a trail of possibly mysterious deaths yeah. in her wake yeah. earlier in her life. Yes, and there is uh, one account that someone mentions of uh, a close friend of hers uh, who was supposed to be a eunuch. There's also some rumor that maybe he wasn't really a eunuch and they had a sexual relationship, but someone saw him carrying food into the emperor right before he died. Uh, so there are there is some evidence that suggests it. However, we don't know for certain. It's very circumstantial. Yeah. Uh, Shiji was incredibly powerful and politically strong, but unfortunately her anti-foreign conservatism and some pretty bad administrative missteps in her later reign 
really, really caused some problems. For example, she spent naval funds on a summer palace, which weakened the military and precipitated the defeat in the Sino-Japanese War. And her mausoleum, which was built prior to her death, is actually filled with precious materials in amounts that exceed most emperors' tombs. She really, like demanded that she have only the best things and in numbers that were just sort of ridiculous at the time. You know, it's like, I want, I think I, I saw a thing that said that most tombs had like three golden pillars and hers has something like 64. Whoa. I mean, she really wanted only the best and most immaculate and most amazing. Uh, and unfortunately, all of that kind of behavior and particularly her conservatism and unwillingness to kind of open uh, China's doors to the rest of the world really were direct contributors to the demise of the Qing dynasty. There's also an interesting footnote in all of this, which is that the accounts of her uh, intrigues and her life have actually caused their own sort of story of drama amongst biographers. Early accounts were mostly written by George Morrison and linguist reporter Edmund Backhouse, who wrote reports for Westerners from Peking in the late 1800s and early 1900s. In the early 1990s, Sterling Seagrave wrote a biography of Shiji called The Dragon Lady. And in his book, he really discredits Morrison and Backhouse. Uh, Several sources have shown that Backhouse fabricated some of his stories. And even Morrison's diary mentions that he had discovered that um, that Backhouse was writing fake stories, presumably to further his career, but that at that point, Morrison was so deep in that he would have discredited himself had he blown the whistle. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, I feel like that's a story that we continue to hear today sometimes when people fabricate craziness and then get it published. But there is also resistance to Seagrave's version of the story because he really paints a much more sympathetic um, picture of Shiji and characterizes her as a fearful figurehead. And, you know, she knows that she's trapped in an impoverished dynasty and she's really struggling with everything around her. But as often is the case, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle because there are things like evidence that she misspent naval funds making herself a beautiful summer home and that she had this, you know, insane mausoleum built for herself. And so those are not really the things that I would normally associate with a fearful person who is very, you know, scared and trapped. Though she may have had, I'm sure she was a human, she probably had fears and concerns. But uh, I think somewhere between those two is really where we get the, the reality. Right. Plus the trail of bodies. <laughs> I mean, that could entirely be coincidence. But at the same time, it seems a little unlikely that there was not something going there's, on. There's a lot of death and intrigue in that story. You also have some listener mail, do you not? I do indeed. Uh, this is actually from our Facebook page, and it's from our listener, Lily Ann. And she says, I was wondering if you could encourage your listeners to give blood. My answer, Absolutely. Uh, There was recently a major tragedy in my area. A fertilizer plant exploded, leaving many people injured, and the blood banks are in desperate need of donations. This serves as a reminder that a tragedy can happen at any moment, and the best way to deal with it is to be prepared. People are so willing to flood blood banks after a major incident, but that leaves every other day lacking. If we could set up a great supply before something like this happens, then we wouldn't be in such dire need when we need blood the most. So true. 
behavior change. I would also encourage people to give platelets if that is something they are interested in. Right. That is another thing that is much needed and needed all the time. Platelets can only exist for five days, I think, once they're donated, so they need a constant supply. Uh, much like blood, these things go lacking in tragedies sometimes. Right. So, and if you cannot do either thing for whatever reason, yeah. there are many other ways to contribute, either with money or time. Yeah. Uh, we highly encourage that. I am not usually a candidate for any of that because I don't have enough iron in my blood no matter how much steak I eat. So I'm trying desperately, but so I try to sometimes volunteer. I'll help do mm-hmm. patient check-in. If you would like to write to us, you may do so. You can email us at historypodcasts at discovery.com. We're on Twitter at Missed in History, and we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash historyclassstuff. We're also on Tumblr at mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and you can find us on Pinterest. Uh, if you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, you can go to our website and type in the words Chinese traditions, and you will come up with an article called How Chinese Traditions Work. If you'd like to learn more about that or anything else your mind can conjure, you can do so at our website, and that website is howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today.